Welcome to Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and visit the Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. Today's guest is Lamar Giles, a two-time Edgar Award finalist for his YA thrillers, Fake ID and Endangered. His third YA thriller, Overturn, received a glowing New York Times review. Lamar is a contributor to the YA anthology, Three Sides of a Heart, and the editor of the forthcoming We Need Diverse Books YA short story anthology, Fresh Ink. Lamar joined me today to talk about the overconfidence he had as a young writer and how he took the time to reflect on eight years worth of projection before landing his agent in 2010 with his sixth novel. Nothing But Sky by Amy Trueblood. 18-year-old wing walker Grace will do anything to get to the 1922 World Aviation Expo, even if it means risking her life every day. A thrilling YA historical publisher's weekly calls a post-World War I epoch with visceral period detail. Available in stores now. My listeners are always anxious to hear about how published authors conquered the query trenches. So tell us a little bit about your journey from aspiring to agented author. When I decided that I wanted to be a professional, I was about 21 years old. I started to complete more work and I learned that you could send letters to editors to sell shorter things. But in order to sell a novel, if you wanted like a a traditional deal, you needed an agent. And so very early on in that process, I started to kind of understand what querying was, but I honestly didn't take it very seriously. I would finish the first draft of a novel, write the query letter the same day, and then send it to 50 agents. And you can probably guess what my success rate was. I probably spent eight years getting 100% rejections. I mean, that's just me being hardheaded, though, because it's not like advice wasn't out there. I was just rushing. I I finished something. I'm excited. I want to get it out in front of people. And I would just rush the whole process. And after doing that for like five novels, I decided that I wanted to really slow down and give myself the best shot of succeeding in at least getting a request for a partial. This is around the time when I'm writing my first young adult novel, Fake ID. And so at that point, too, a couple of things have happened. I've been writing novels for eight years, so I've gotten better at it. Fake ID is probably the first really sellable thing that I had. I recognized that there was something there. And again, having failed so much, I'm not going to mess this part of it up. So I ended up finishing a polished third draft of Fake ID in November of 2009. I'd learned enough about publishing at that point to know that People in publishing pretty much take off two months out of the year, which is August and December. So I'm going into Mm -hmm. December. I know everyone's going to be off. So there's absolutely no need to rush. The thing I'm going to do different this time is spend the entire month working on this letter the same way I would a short story or a novel. And so Mm -hmm. for the month of December, 
I just tweaked that letter over and over again. I did 14 drafts of my query letter for fake ID. I'm rereading it. I'm removing a word here, adding a sentence there. I'm comparing it to the cover copy on books that I enjoy. And I'm trying to get it to be just a super tight sales letter. And at the same time, when I'm not working on it, I'm researching agents because I'm not going to do the 50 agents at once thing. I'm laser Mm -hmm. focused on a group of 20, 25 agents, and I've got them divided up into categories, which is dream agents, agents that I'd be perfectly happy to work with. And then I had agents that were newer and I didn't know much about. I divided them up into silos and decided when I send this letter out in January, I'm just going to go to 10. I'm going to go to three from the A column, three from the B column, four from the C column. If I get 100% rejected like I have in the past, I know something's wrong with my letter. Sent those letters out on January of 2010. Within a day, I had the first request for a full. And by the end of the month, seven of those agents had asked for my full manuscript. But here's the next part of that story. By March, all of them had rejected me. Here's what I learned. I knew my letter was solid. I didn't have to work on that anymore. But I Mm -hmm. took the feedback that I got from all those agents reading my full and I revised the manuscript. It took about three weeks. It wasn't heavy revision, but it was a major plot point that got reworked. And so I went back and I still have my list. Now I'm going to go to five agents. I know my letter's fine. If they ask for the full and nobody offers me representation, I still have more work to do. Out of those five agents, three of them asked for a full and all three offered representation. That's amazing. So can you walk us through then how you decide which of the three that offer? information is probably out there for people who don't know. You should talk to the agents. When people offer you representation, you should talk to them before you agree to work with them and just feel if there's someone who has a similar mindset, goal, or vibe as you. Out of these three agents, all of them were great, but it just so happened that there was one agent that I felt we vibed well. She felt fairly confident that she could sell my manuscript, and she was from my dream column. Mm-hmm. And so that ended up being my agent, Jamie Weiss Chilton, who I've been with for eight years now. When you have that conversation on the phone, when you have more than one agent offering representation, it is exciting and stressful. It's very stressful to have to decide. It is difficult to make a career decision like that. At the same time, there is a relationship there that goes beyond the business aspect where your personalities have to mesh and you can tell. It is like dating. When you have that conversation, you know who you like and who you can work with, and you can feel their excitement for you and for your book over the phone. I'll add this. I had the fortune of having three people that I could choose between, but I understand if you only get that one offer, it's probably extra tempting to take it and extra hard to say no if you don't feel that vibe. But I would still caution people, no agent is better than a bad agent. You should really consider if you feel like something's off and it's not going to work. You're just going to waste your time if you go into a situation you know is wrong from the beginning. Absolutely. I also liked what you were saying about taking eight years of querying before, number one, you would learn how to properly write a query letter. And number two, you had a manuscript that you felt was saleable. And I love the story because I'm with you. I was in there for 10 years writing queries and believing I was a genius and ripping them off and querying manuscripts that I had just finished that were terrible. Oh my gosh. I read them now and it's embarrassing. I'm curious how many novels then your first fake ID was your debut that was picked up. How many novels did you have in the trunk then at the end of your eight years? 
full novels, it was probably six before I got the fake ID. Even through all six, all of them I thought were sellable. And I just thought people couldn't recognize my genius. But the truth is, I really didn't get there until number seven. Yep, absolutely. Not a Drop to Drink was the fifth novel I'd ever written. And it's definitely the first one that it was publishable yet. I believed I was a hidden, unrecognized genius. And it was a hard lesson to learn that I was not. And that's not false modesty. When I read my drafts from those first four novels, one of which was The Female of the Species, but I wasn't ready to write it yet. It wasn't there. Mm -hmm. It's terrible. I think about how great I thought I was, and I realize how terrible I actually was. It is a wonderful lesson in, one, humility, but also that I do believe that writing is a talent that you do have a natural gift for, but that gift is only a seed. It is a small seed and craft and work and everything that you do to build that practice is how you become better. Can I ask you a question? Sure. If Female of the Species was one of your early novels, what was it like going back to it? Like, What did you have to do to make it the publishable work that it is now? scrapped it entirely. Female of Species is actually the very first novel I ever wrote. And it was actually an adult, like thriller, kind of. Alex was a college student and Jack was a cop, like investigating a murder. Oh, it was terrible. I didn't do any research. I was making shit up. I had no idea what I was doing. (laughs) The crimes I had her committing, she would have been caught. His method of police procedural is so poor. He would be fired. Uh, It was just terrible. So yeah, I ended up scrapping everything. I I sold it on spec. So I sold it on the concept and I had talked to my agent and said, Hey, I've got this rape, revenge, social justice idea. And I just kind of spit out what the concept was and wrote it up as a YA. And my editor was like, yes, we want to buy that. And I'm like, cool. And inside I'm thinking that's great because it's already written, right? (laughs) <laughs> and I just have to age them down. Oh my God. And then I go open it up and I didn't even read the whole thing. I only read about half of it. And I was like, dude, this is, this is shit. Like there is nothing here you can use. So the only thing that that manuscript has in common with the printed version of the female species is the title and two characters names. And that is literally all. Wow. That's amazing. But good for you for mm-hmm. recognizing that you had to start from scratch. Coming up, diversity in publishing and how genre writing can be looked down upon. Flash fiction and nonfiction stories are highly sought after by editors in an array of publications. In a Flash, Writing and Publishing Dynamic Flash Prose by Melanie Faith is an engaging writing craft book that offers a diverse range of writing prompts and topics. From the first spark of an idea to drafting, editing, submitting, and publishing your work, filled with real-world advice for every step of your writing practice, this book is the perfect companion for writers, workshops, and classrooms. In a Flash, Writing and Publishing Dynamic Flash Prose by Melanie Faith. You're a founding member of We Need Diverse Books, as well as the editor of the upcoming anthology Fresh Ink, which is a We Need Diverse Books anthology featuring diverse authors. So do you think that strides are being made toward making the publishing industry more diverse? And in that, I mean, both in that we're seeing authors of color get attention and deals and exposure, but also within the industry, which is something I think is important to see agents, to see editors, to see professionals of color 
established within the industry? Where do you think we're at on those two fields? I think we still have a long way to go. And I don't mean that to sound negative. I think there has been progress, but I don't think it was ever a thing that was going to 180 within the Mm -hmm. four years that We Need Diverse Books has been around because it hadn't done that in the decades prior to all the other people who have fought for the very same thing. I think we have been fortunate in the support we've received. You can see even in like the times list how it's vastly different now, the representation than what you might have seen five years ago. I'm not saying that's Winnie Diverse Books doing the concerted industry effort to put more diverse voices into the world is yielding some results. That being Mm -hmm. said, I think we're still years away from seeing total widespread change And I don't know if we'll ever get to equality per se. I don't know if you can really measure it in there's 25% of this and 25% of that. But I think you're starting to see more of the gatekeepers also be own voices, diverse agents, editors, marketing people. The people who can make the decision to get more diverse things published are moving up the ranks. We Need Diverse Books actually has an internship program where when publishers or agencies offer people paid internships during the summer. We help subsidize their living expenses so that they can be a bit more comfortable as they're trying to work their way into big publishing. And a lot of our interns have gotten full-time jobs in the industry. And so those will be people who a decade from now, if they stay in the industry, will be the new gatekeepers and decision makers to help make some of that change come about. So we're getting there. It was always going to be slow. And we're seeing those slow results pick up a bit. One of the conversations that I had recently with a writer of color, and I thought it was a great point, was that aspiring authors of color need to be aware when they are getting attention from agents for Own Voices manuscripts that the agent is actually in it for them and for this manuscript and not for the trend, not trying to make a sale because this is what's hot. So any idea on how writers can defend themselves or be on the lookout for that kind of action when they are querying? Oh, wow. For one, that's a great point. And I hadn't even thought about it. I think that's probably what happens with me not being in the query trenches for the last Mm -hmm. eight years. I never Mm -hmm. even considered that there could be sort of predatory practices when it comes to people, own voices, authors trying to find representation. I think it comes down to that phone call and that interview when you get that offer. I don't know exactly what questions you'd ask, but maybe it needs to be along the lines of why do you find my manuscript appealing? What are your feelings on own voices, diverse books? Is this something you were aware of prior to, say, 2014? Mm -hmm. Um, If not, why? Also, if not, why now? Maybe those are the things you could ask. I don't feel like any agent who is not unscrupulous would have a problem answering that. No, I think those are good questions. It also comes down to what we talked about before. You kind of got to use your gut when talking to people and thinking about if you're going to make that jump and become partners with them, Mm -hmm. because that's also how I look at it. Your agent is your business partner. You're not going to enter into any business partnership lightly in this one in particular. You are a two-time Edgar Award nominee for your titles Fake ID and Endangered. Do you find that award nominations give you a boost in readership or sales, or is the benefit mostly in the recognition? I'm going to bounce this question back to you in a moment, too, and you'll know why in a second. Fair enough. But (laughs) I think more so recognition. I don't know that it makes a huge difference in sales 
or readership. I've seen the sales numbers for Fake ID and Endangered, which were both Edgar nominated. Fake ID's done significantly better than Endangered. So I don't see that there was necessarily a boost there. But I think the recognition and the validation that comes with the nomination has been helpful in some regard, particularly, I think, in getting other jobs. If you count the Fresh Ink editorial job, I now have worked with four of the major publishers in New York. And I think some of that has come from the fact that those Edgar nominations came and they came in back-to-back years. First of all, it's incredibly humbling to have that particular nomination because it's coming from the other writers that do what we do. But to your question, Mindy, I'm curious, have you seen a big change because you actually won it in 2016? I did win and no, (laughs) no change. (laughs) Uh, I do think though, as you were saying that those awards in the industry, they matter in the industry. People know what they mean and people know that it's a nod to your craft readers in the mystery genre. I think they do know what an Edgar means, but I don't think that outside of that genre, it carries much weight. I did see a slight boost when I won. No, I saw a slight boost when I was nominated. When they did the release, you know, these are the nominated titles. And by slight, I do mean slight. So after winning, no, I did not see that boost. You know, it was a good lesson. We're always learning in publishing. I don't know that we'll ever know what makes a New York Times bestseller. But it's not an award the book that won A Madness So Discreet, I would love to write a sequel to that book. And I've had many, many, many people email me and tweet me saying, oh my gosh, you have to write a sequel. I would love to do that. I have an idea. I have a proposal all together. It has not sold well enough to greenlight a sequel, even though it won the Edgar Awards. So again, I do absolutely treasure that award. I love it. It gave me a confidence boost. But no, in sales... No, not readership or sales, but definitely just that recognition. It helps in tremendous ways. It also made me viable for other publishers at a time when I was concerned about whether I could even stay in this industry. Mm -hmm. Fake ID came out, then Endangered came out, but it's not like they were doing gangbuster numbers. I didn't know at the time if I could survive as a writer, but I think those nominations came along at a time that, you know, made me more attractive to my current publisher at that time and made me more attractive to other publishers. And I've been able to have enough work where I've been full time for almost four years now. That's awesome. Good for you. There were benefits, but not necessarily in, like you say, I didn't make the New York Times list because of the nomination, but I'm still grateful for it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So sticking with the mystery genre, you write both mystery thriller and YA, so you're operating in two spheres that can often be looked down upon, either by readers or within the literary industry. I just did a interview with Laurie Rader Day, who's won multiple awards in the mystery category, yet she says people ask her all the time, when are you going to write a serious book? And I know you have more than likely had the question as an author of YA, when are you going to write a real book? <sighs> I hate that. Yeah, I hate it too. I hate it too. It's a couple things there. First of all, I've gotten to the point where that question doesn't bother me at all. And the reason why is I think about often who's asking. A lot of times, it's funny because it can be a well-meaning person to ask it, right? Sure, sure. They're not necessarily trying to hurt your feelings, but they only know that 
you're writing in a genre that maybe doesn't have the prestige as what we consider to be contemporary or what we consider to be adult. And so they don't mean any harm. So that's the one thing I try to take into account. The other thing is I just have a lot of respect for the readers who have supported me. And so it doesn't matter to me that some people look down on it. I'm happy to serve my readers. And I was one of those readers. I'm a huge Stephen King fan. Anybody who knows me knows that. You've probably experienced this too, Mindy, where depending on who you're around, if you bring up King, they look down at you because of that too. Absolutely, yes. I've been in many academic environments where that's happened or just casual reading environments. But here's the thing that no one ever asked me about, which is why do you like King so much? Mm -hmm. I would have to explain that I grew up in a factory town. We didn't have a bookstore. We had a library. But when I was young and I wanted to have books that I could own, you had to get them from the grocery store. Mm -hmm. And guess who was always in the grocery store? I will never disrespect a genre that makes books accessible to people who may not be able to go and find Faulkner or Hemingway Mm -hmm. or when they become fans of those books they're accessible of, I will never let anyone tear down that love for that genre writer book, whatever it is. So that part doesn't faze me. As far as bridging the gap to larger readership, I think we are burdened with having to be a consistent producer of product. The way you keep your readership up or grow it is that you kind of have to go book a year or average book a year. I know you debuted in like 2013. I debuted in 14. I have three out, but I'm going to have three out in the next two years and I have projects in development. So the average will be about the same. I think we have to do that in order to maintain our readership. Yes, we do. I agree. And it is a tremendous pressure. As hard as it is, and I know you know how hard it is, it's still the best job I've ever had. Absolutely. Yes. I have a post on the blog about the ever-moving bar of success in publishing. Went to a signing this weekend where some friends of mine were signing and I had to get out of the house, had to get out from behind the laptop. Everyone was talking about how you attain one thing in the publishing world. You get an agent and you're so excited and you had thought this will be what makes me happy. No, now I need a sale. And then you get that and you're like, yes, I am happy and I am successful now. Like, well, but I didn't hit the New York Times. So I won this award. Oh, that's awesome. I won this award. I am a successful writer now. But the sales aren't that great. And it never stops. And you do have to just be able to say, I write for a living. And that is amazing. Yes. Yes, absolutely agree 100%. You can control your effort. That's about it. That's okay. Because, again, this is still better than situations I've been in as a working adult where I could control more than my effort and I still wasn't happy. We have great jobs. Of course, you could always want more, but that's human. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's not only true of your uh, employment, whatever it may be. You buy that car you always wanted and then you're like, ah, but... I wish it had leather seats instead. It's, it doesn't matter. There's always something that you want that you don't have. It's a little more philosophical than I usually go on the podcast, but I had a conversation the other day with someone. We were talking about happiness, and I'm not sure that people absolutely understand the concept of happiness, and I don't think anyone ever thinks about being content. My aim would be contentment, not happiness, because I feel yes. like happiness should be fleeting or else it's not happiness. That's pretty deep, Mindy. You got philosophical on the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to drop that and go back to Stephen King. I love your point and I agree with you. I actually had a professor in college who was a professor of Gothic literature and she said that Stephen King was the most 
underrated author of our time. And everyone kind of laughed at her and they're like underrated. He's the only author that all of us could name that we've all read at least one book. And she's like, yeah, critics would not agree with you. Like underrated in the sense that he doesn't get respect as far as his craft. And that really is bullshit because that man can write and the character development and the plot and the pacing, like he does everything right. I don't care about genre. I go back to accessibility and he's been responsible for making fiction accessible to a lot of people that wouldn't been able to tune in and read a whole novel otherwise. Mm -hmm. Similar to to J.K. Rowling's effect Mm -hmm. on literature in the late 90s into the 2000s. She brought the concept of reading not just one novel, but seven and waiting in line for them, being super excited every time one came out to a whole generation of readers. And King's done that too. The fanfare is there for him. You got to give the man props for mm-hmm. that. I don't know if I would be here if not for his Agreed. work. Agreed. I told you like that first Edgar nomination at the ceremony, he was there mm-hmm. and I got to tell him that. And it was like an emotional moment for me because I legitimately thought I would not be here if not for your books. And now I get to shake your hand. It was like, to me, as cool or cooler as being nominated. Absolutely. I just don't tolerate people dissing him, you know? No, like, not at all. The man's done a, a ton for just literacy mm-hmm. in general. Nope, I am with you 100% on that. I would not be a writer if it wasn't for Stephen King either. I can say that absolutely and with conviction. And you know what? The year that you and I were there together, he was supposed to be there. He was nominated and he was sick and he didn't come. Oh. It would have been awesome to see him again. And I know it would have been awesome for you to see him. Such a cool guy when I met him. Total nice man. I just have nothing but good things to say mm-hmm. about him. Lastly, the complexities of writing a book set in a city you are unfamiliar with and how research can help you get most things right. And where to find Lamar online. Your book, Overturned, is about cards, poker specifically. I love poker. I'm pretty good at it. I don't think I could ever sit down at a professional table, but I can fleece the farm boys around here pretty well. Why a card game book? I'm curious. You may experience a little bit of this, too. So you'll tell me, I don't know if our thought processes are exactly the same here, but I was always looking for cool things my protagonist could be Mm -hmm. into that I hadn't really seen before. And I couldn't really think of a teen poker playing detective. Overturned is a bit of a murder mystery. I don't want to spoil too much. I just thought it was neat to have this card playing hero in Vegas. Mm -hmm. When I thought of it, I had never been to Vegas, but I played cards a little bit. I'm sure you would mop the floor with me, maybe, but I, I play a little. Because I was playing at the time, I was like, it'd be cool if my character did this, but where would she be? Because all my books were set in Virginia prior to that. Mm-hmm. We don't really have the gaming culture here. So I'm thinking it's either going to be Atlantic City or Vegas. And I was super nervous because I hadn't written outside my state before and even made up the cities in my state so I could do what I want with them. <laughs> And when you're talking about Atlantic City or Vegas, that's a real place. You have to kind of stick to real geography. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to go out to Vegas, do some research. It was a research trip. If I felt good about it, I was like, I'll give it a shot. And I went out there, had a great time, got a lot of good research material. Just put in the hours after that. And I think it came out great. That's awesome. That's awesome. Interestingly enough, Las Vegas is the only real place I've ever featured in any of my books either. It's in uh, in a handful of dust. It's just like a carcass of a city at that point, but it's there. But I'm with you. I don't like to write real locations because I worry very much about being corrected. Yes. And I was super nervous. I just so happened to have gotten 
a great guy. Mm -hmm. The person I connected with, he was so connected to the city. He'd grown up there and he was able to really take me around. And I'm talking like three days. I took a thousand pictures, had like 12 hours of video, 15 hours of audio interviews. And I took all that home and sort of had to sort through it to see what I could use. Just that trip alone is what makes the real locations in the book sing. Mm. If I got it wrong, it's totally my fault. But if it's right, it's because of my guide in that trip. Yeah, that's that's real research right there. But, you know, I was so glad to do it, Mindy, because now I, I feel like I could write about any city by following the same sort yeah, of process. Yeah, definitely. That's super cool. I am jealous of your confidence of executing a city. Oh, I mean... <laughs> I'll backtrack a little bit because I still would be super nervous, but I think I've found shortcuts to get the right sure, information. you've got your process down. People love to correct you. And you do, I mean, you're never going to get everything right. You're just not. Just being corrected is part of the game. You'll probably find this amusing being that you actually play the game. I actually got corrected on the poker in the book. Ooh. No one ever corrected me on anything about Vegas, but two areas in the course of trying to make the plot work and make the emotional stuff happen the way I needed to. I messed up two of the games oh. and I had to go back and try to fix them. It was one of those things where you're trying to fix a couple of things and you're also going through copy edits. I missed something and I had to go in and try to fix two games before we printed yeah, the I hear final you. version. You know what? Don't beat yourself over the head too much about it. I have okay. the sun rising over the Pacific Ocean at the end other than a handful of dust. So <laughs> you just never know what's going to get away from it, it, it happens. It happens. <laughs> My book that's coming out in March called Heroin features a softball player. And I know that game inside and out. Like that game is my heart. Obviously, I played ball in the 90s. At that time, we were still playing with softballs that were white with red stitches. I talk about the ball in the book at one point. My character's high out of her mind. And she's just staring at a softball and thinking about it and thinking about the contrast. And we don't use white softballs today. Today, the softballs are neon. They are yellow. It was like, somebody's going to catch that. And I thought about it after I'd already done first pass. And I was like, you know what? I'm okay with letting that stand. It's like, somebody's going to catch it. People are going to point it out. And I'm like, it's an indicator of my age. If nothing else, I'm okay with it. <laughs> it's a couple things there. First of all, that is exactly the sort of stuff that has kept me up at night on every book I've oh, written. Yeah. Like even the stuff that's coming out next year, little stuff I'm just uncertain about. I'm like, are people gonna have a problem with it? Did I say it right? That's a look inside the mm -hmm. writer's mind. Something that gave me comfort on these things. Do you know Christopher Golden? Yeah. And he said something on Facebook once that sort of helped me relax a bit. And he talks about when he talks to his experts to try to get the information that we all try to get to make stuff correct. Even when he talks to his experts, he tells them, I need enough information to fool the average reader, not necessarily yeah. you. I hope you understand if in the course of me manipulating this stuff for the book, it's not exactly precisely the way you would see it or do it or say it. It helped me feel a little bit better. Like we won't get everything right, but for all the work we do, if we get like 98%, I think we're okay. Yeah. Lydia Kang. I think you know Lydia. I use Lydia for all of my physical injuries, any kind of medical process in all of my books, because she is a doctor as well as an author. Well, in heroin, my character is in a car crash and says she has to have surgery on her hip 
And then she is seeing a doctor for checkups after that, Lydia, as well as my copy editor, who unfortunately had had the exact same surgery, fortunately or unfortunately, however you want to look at it, had had the exact (laughs) same surgery. And they were like, well, she wouldn't be going to her regular doctor for these checkups. She would be seeing the surgeon. And I was just like, okay, but... I don't want to have her driving into the city like for an hour every time because it messes up my plot because I have to have her back for practice. So I'm just having her go to a regular doctor and you guys are right. And I want you to know that you're right. But being right is going to mess up my pacing. So we're just going to have her go over here. And that's the kind of stuff like you're right. You just let it go because it's not important to the average reader who she's seeing for her checkups. Exactly. Exactly. We do what we have to do. Okay, last question. What is up next for you? You said you've got three coming out shortly. Also, where can listeners find you online? Okay, yeah. So what's coming up on August 14th, Fresh Ink, the new WNDB anthology will be in stores. Awesome lineup of some of YA superstars. So if you're interested in that, pick that up. January 29th, my new mystery novel, Spin, will be out. And that's about two frenemies who have to solve a DJ's murder while being coerced by her online fandom. That's the new mystery. And then April 9th will be my middle grade fantasy novel, The Last Last Day of Summer, about two cousins in rural Virginia who are known for solving supernatural mysteries. But on the last day of summer, they accidentally freeze time and they kind of have to fix that. Wow, that sounds awesome. And then in January of 2019, I'm going to have a contemporary coming of age novel coming out. It doesn't have a title yet, but it's about a kid who joins the purity pledge in his church Mm -hmm. because a girl he likes is in it. And he does it in the same week that he starts sex ed at his high school He's the only one in the Purity Pledge who's allowed to take sex ed. So he becomes this go-between asking the Purity Pledgers questions in class. And it just causes a whole bunch of problems. In wow, town. dude, that sounds amazing. That Thank is you. right Thank up you. my alley right um, there. That's awesome. And as far as where to find me, it's LamarGiles.com. I'm at LRGiles on Twitter. And I'm LamarGiles on Instagram. Fantastic. Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. If you find the podcast or blog helpful, please consider making a donation by visiting GoFundMe.com and searching for Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire. Or visit the blog by going to WriterWriterPantsOnFire.blogspot.com. Click on the podcast tab and then the PayPal button. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. Join me next week for another episode of Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where writers talk about things that never happened to people that don't exist.